So uh, I'm Cameron, as I said. Um, it's great to be up here speaking again with you. Um, I've really enjoyed preparing for this message that I'm about to bring you tonight, and I personally have been uh, particularly challenged by it. So uh, excited to bring it and share it with you tonight. So I'll be speaking tonight on how we're transformed as Christians, looking mainly at the text in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 32. I want to focus on this idea of us being changed and putting on the new self and how our words, behavior, lifestyle, and our hearts are ultimately changed as a result of our faith and when we let God into our lives. But before I go into the passage, I want to share with you a story. So has anyone seen the film Unbroken? Or aware of, uh, of the story? Okay, good. So it tells the story of this guy, Louis Zamperini, and his survival during a horrendous series of events in the Second World War. So Louis Zamperini, this guy in the bottom right, uh, was a former American Olympian and a bombardier in the Second World War, flying in one of these massive planes, uh, fighting within the Pacific, Pacific Theater. His plane went down in the ocean, and he was forced to survive in a life raft for 47 days, during which time he suffered through dehydration, malnutrition, uh, starvation, a scorching sun, illness, shark attacks, and even being shot at by enemy aircraft flying over. On the raft, Zamperini said a seemingly small, insignificant prayer, asking God for help to sur- for him to survive. And if he did, then he would serve him forever. So after 47 days on this life raft, the survivors were picked up by enemy forces and were taken, by, were taken to a POW camp, where they were held in horrible conditions, tortured, and ultimately one in three of the POWs died as a, as a result of these horrendous conditions. Because of his fame as an Olympic athlete, Zamperini was treated especially cruelly in an attempt to break the morale of the other POWs at this camp. And the film Unbroken, which was released a few years ago, tells the story of Zamperini's fight to survive. I think as a society, we love these stories, don't we? Of a hero facing seemingly insurmountable odds, um, showing that strength of the human spirit and that fight to survive. It's inspiring, really, showing us the lengths that humans go to to survive. So the, the movie pretty much finishes with the liberation of the POW camp at the end of the Second World War, and Zamperini returns home with a hero's welcome. But his story doesn't end there. The war left him with PTSD, and after returning home, he returned to alcohol and became violent and abusive towards his loved ones, including his new, his new wife. He turned um, to pushing people away, isolating himself, and this violence and abusive um, aspect of his life became more and more prevalent, even waking up to find himself strangling his wife following a nightmare that he was having. So while the film showed that Zamperini was this unbroken spirit, we see the reality was really far from that. And his life was really turned upside down by his experiences at war, with his prospect of divorce on the horizon, pushing other uh, loved ones away, and his isolation, showing that he had little hope for the rest of his life. Having exhausted all other attempts to help Zamperini, his wife gave him this final ultimatum, asking him to join her at one of the crusades by a young Billy Graham. She believed that all she could do now, having exhausted all other efforts, was just to let God do his thing. So despite being very hesitant, Sam Perini went along, and he actually left within a few minutes of the first meeting. 
He went along to the second one even more hesitant. But then he was reminded of that prayer that he said on the life raft, being reminded of how God saved him and actually acted in his life. He described the moment of conversion himself here. He said, I dropped my knees and for the first time in my life truly humbled myself before the Lord. I asked him to forgive me for not having kept my promises and for my sinful life. I made no excuses. I did not rationalize. I did not um, blame. He had said, God had said, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So I took him at his word, begged him for his pardon, and asked Jesus to come into my life. So with this example of Zamperini, we see how God has the power to change the people who are even the people who are the furthest away from him. Those who are struggling with alcohol, violence, abuse, or any other kind of issues. But we're all broken in some shape or form, and God wants to help us. Becoming a Christian changes us, causing a transformation of our hearts, which then leads to a change in how we live our lives, ultimately. We receive a gift from, the, from God, this Holy Spirit who dwells in us, and brings us to a place of genuine love and worship for God, letting us achieve that true relationship that we're meant for, if only we open ourselves up. So with that, let's look at the passage. So it starts, So I tell you this, and insist in it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their understanding or their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their heart. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your lives, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every kind of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ forgave you. So, wow. So I chose this passage to look at tonight because the idea of how we live as Christians has been on my mind. It's something that certainly challenged me, feeling especially important now as I've been on this journey of faith for the last five years or so. I suppose I've been evaluating how being a Christian has changed my life and how God has been acting in my life. And that's something that I want you to explore further and see what the Bible says about that change and how it comes about. So this passage in Ephesians describes the way that we should be living. In fact, the, the whole book of Ephesians really describes the way that we should be living in our day-to-day lives, where we see Paul unraveling this relationship between our faith and how we live our ordinary, everyday lives. In the first few verses of this passage that we're looking at now, Paul describes how the Gentiles live. 
describing how we also lived before we ourselves encountered God. So later in the passage, we see how Paul goes into detail of how we should live as Christians, describing the behaviors and lifestyles that we should be avoiding. However, in this early part, he describes how these symptoms are a result of a more serious condition, being a disconnect or an alienation from God. And that's really uh, the human problem that we're looking at here. In Paul's writing, we see a logical flow describing this separation from God. Firstly, we have this hardening of our hearts, which leads to an ignorance of the divine reality around us and a darkness of our understanding. Because of this ignorance, we don't know what we should be striving for, and we end up chasing after the things that are wrong for, for us, and, um, or even the good things that we have in life, but for the wrong motives. Ultimately, this leads to a futility that's mentioned in verse 17 here, where our actions have no spiritual significance, and there's a disconnect from God. Again, this is that human problem. And I think this problem is a bit like the old game whack-a-mole. So I don't know if uh, people are really aware of it anymore, but it's kind of like a, an old game where you smack moles in their heads. And I guess any, any version we have now is on like a phone or a tablet. So the idea is to use a mallet to hit the moles as they pop their heads up, which appear and disappear increasingly rapidly, making the game more and more difficult. So that's like life separated from God, and I'll tell you why. So in life, if we're separated from God, if we're wanting to feel fulfilled, we focus on hitting these different moles that pop up in our lives. So we might have the school mole pop, the university mole pop, the work mole, the the, um, family mole, the good friends mole, the nice car mole, lots of money mole, and so on. But human nature is that we keep on wanting more. We keep looking for that next mole that we can pop in the head and get more points and feel more satisfied. So I don't know if anyone's heard the quote from Jim Carrey, the Hollywood actor. He said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. So these things I mentioned, the um, family, work, friends, and so on, they're not necessarily sinful themselves. In fact, they can be a real blessing from God. The issue arises when we idolize these things. Paul goes on to write about in this passage we're looking at the more sinful things that we might chase after, giving ourselves over to sensuality, to impurity and greed. These things might give us uh, an initial pleasure, giving that short-term satisfaction, but they pull us away from that relationship with, uh, with God that we're called to. And ultimately, we're going to lose this game of whack-a-mole where we might be tempted into getting all of the moles early on in the game, but as more moles pop up, we get more and more frantic trying to hit them all, and we end up getting distracted and pulled away from God. For the true Christian, we don't play this game. Our sights are on God, and we live according to how he wants us to live. And we know that this life that God's planned for us is ultimately for our own good, as said to us in Romans 8:28. So Paul gave us this description of how we shouldn't live as those who are disconnected from God. But he doesn't leave us there. And we have a solution to this alienation from him and a new purpose in our lives. We have this new opportunity to put on new clothes, this new self, this new character. Importantly, as Christians, we need to have heard about Christ, as in we've encountered his message and have taken that crucial step towards understanding him, enrolling in his kind of school, the school of the gospel. 
It's not our own actions that allow us to break away from that cycle of ignorance, darkness, and separation from God, but the voice of Jesus who sets us free. So Paul then describes how we're to live as Christians. For those of you with a Bible open, um, what does it say at the title, as the title for this portion of text? So in the NIV, it says, Instructions for Christian Living. And what are we told to do as part of these instructions for Christian living? If we look at the verses uh, 21 to 24, we get a bit of a clue here. So we first heard about Christ and his message, and then we're taught to change our clothes, to put off our old self and to put on our new self. We need to remove that part of our characters that belong to the old self, our old lives, before we encounter God, the part that doesn't align with how God wants us to live, and then replace it with this new Christian life, this new Christian self of us. So being a Christian demands action, where we cannot be fulfilled any longer in the lives that we were previously living. Our faith doesn't complement that anymore, and we're forced towards a change. Ultimately, we're created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, and that our old self no longer complements our faith. Thankfully, again, we're not left at that, and Paul goes on in the next part to go into a bit more detail about what he means here. So there's a big passage here, lots of writing, and we see hints of this in Paul's other letters, such as in Colossians chapter 3, where he says, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeking that you have put, seeking that you have put off the old self with his practices. So he then contrasts this old self with the new self in the same chapter. He says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So as followers of Jesus, we're enrolled in his school, being taught his message and how he wants us to live our lives for him. If we don't make an attempt to live lives that are pleasing to God, in other words, changing our clothes, putting on that new self, we're ultimately living lives that are chasing after the same humanly desires that we had previously. And Paul describes that earlier on as being futile. The school that we're now enrolled in as followers of Jesus Christ isn't like other schools that we might know. We don't do it by ourselves. We don't work hard at it alone, studying well into the night to get good grades. That would become the school of legalism or of self-improvement, working to earn our place as good people. No, the change comes from God, from grace. This is the school of grace, where God does the work for us, making this new self, and then giving us the opportunity to put it on. So within the school, within life, God gives us some coursework to do. And that coursework is the most important piece of work that we'll ever have before us, with the result determining whether we go to heaven or not. But with this coursework, we find that God has done the work for us. And not only that, but we're given the best mark, straight A's. Now that doesn't sound like an earthly school I know of. So we've already been given our place in heaven through our faith in Jesus Christ. We just need to accept him into our lives. We should have faith that God is at work in our lives. If we look at chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 10, it says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So God has already established a place for us. He's prepared the way for us to live. What we need to do now is to give ourselves over to him, to surrender ourselves, 
and accept this coursework that he's done for us. So once we accept this coursework, which was Jesus coming to earth, dying on the cross, and being resurrected, we can then find our salvation. But God doesn't leave us there. He wants us to become the people that he made us to be, which is where this putting on the new self comes in. But then you might be thinking to yourself, how do we put on this new self? How do we accept this coursework from God? And how does God change us? So if we look at verses, chat, verses 22 and 24, we see this kind of contrast between the old self and the corruption of that and the new self and the righteousness before God. And thankfully we have this bridge of, chapter, of um, verse 23 where it says in the King James Version, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And again, you might ask, where does this renewing come from? I believe it comes from knowing God, from studying his word, as it was said in Colossians 3, verses 2 to 3. It says, Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So I'll read that last verse again. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So Christ lives in us and changes us. We need to remember that, and what the Bible says about this repeatedly, about Christ living in us, dwelling in us, about our bodies being a temple. Ultimately, God is the one who brings about change in our life, in our lives. If you look at Louis Zamperini, the guy that we were talking about earlier, he was only able to be freed from his suffering after the war uh, with help from God and not through his own actions. Doing things himself, doing things himself, sorry, he turned to isolating himself, pushing his friends and loved ones away, turned to alcohol, which really didn't help him in any way. So we have countless verses in the Bible that talk about Christ living in us and being uh, one with us. And I would love for us just to read through these and not need to say anything else about them, that they would just permeate into our minds and hearts and we'd really understand the reality of our faith. So I'm just going to go through these because they're so important and they're so good to know. So Ephesians 3.17 says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Jesus said that he would leave his followers the Holy Spirit, an advocate to help us and be with us forever. We are moved, guided, and influenced by the Holy Spirit. An amazing example of this comes from the Dutch Christian, Corrie ten Boom, who I'm sure a few of you will uh, be aware of. She has an incredible story. During the Second World War, she worked to save many Jewish people from the Nazi Holocaust while ending up imprisoned in a few of these concentration camps herself. While held in the various camps, she held services for the prisoners, encouraging them in their faith. And she even began planning a place of rehabilitation and healing for those who had been affected by the war. In her book, she describes the fear that she had if she ever had to stand up for her faith, believing that she wasn't strong enough to do so. So the story goes like this. Daddy, she said one day, I'm afraid that I will never be strong enough to be a martyr for Jesus Christ. 
Tell me, her father wisely responded. When, I, when you take a train trip from Harlem to Amsterdam, when do I give you the money for the ticket? Three weeks before? No, Daddy, you give me the money for the ticket just before we get in the train. That's right, he said. And so it is with God's strength. Our wise Father in heaven knows when you're going to need things too. Today you do not need the strength to be a martyr, but as soon as you're called upon for the honor of facing death for Jesus, he will supply the strength that you need just in time. Corey then told her readers, I took great comfort in my father's advice. Later I had to suffer for Jesus in a concentration camp. He indeed gave me the courage and the power that I needed. Here, Corrie ten Boom was demonstrating how the Holy Spirit acts in our lives when we rely on him in our time of need. In 1 Peter 4, it says that we're blessed when we're insulted or persecuted for the name of Christ, because the spirit of glory and God rests on us. But I think this is hard, isn't it? I mean, I think human instinct is whenever we want to make change, improve ourselves, the first thing we do is take action ourselves. And we see this with the Pharisees in Jesus' day, where they would have the ceremonial washing and sacrificial system, keeping to these methods with the idea that they would be improved. Today we have our own approaches to carry out change, methods described to us in self-help books. A lot of these can be good, though, helping us in some ways, such as in dieting, exercise, healthy living, or just being productive during the day. But ultimately, that change, that real change, comes not from our behaviors and our rituals, but from God himself. It's through the Holy Spirit that we're changed. When we become Christians, we have this being dwell within us, allowing us to be fulfilled as Christians and never being left alone to fend for ourselves. So we're like the toys that you get at Christmas or on your birthday. So remember when you'd open up a new gadget or a new toy or a new phone, and that disappointment you'd feel when there are no batteries included or it wasn't previously charged. You'd just be sitting there with an empty shell with no practical use until you could steal the uh, batteries from TV remote or steal them from somewhere else. But as Christians, the Holy Spirit is within us immediately when we confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We have the batteries included, which enables us to be changed as Christians And that power is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, which is just amazing to think about. So the Holy Spirit influences us in different ways, changing our words, behaviors, lifestyle, and our hearts ultimately. This is done in the following ways. Firstly, the Holy Spirit reveals the glory of Jesus to us, reminding us of him even at our last hour. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, in part, Surely I am with you, always to the very end of the age. We're also given the ability to worship him properly as we're expected to by God, to experience his love and his beauty as we're meant to. The Holy Spirit also gives us this sense of assurance that we belong to Christ even in the trials, even in our persecutions. And we're also given the words to say and the tools that we need for each of the trials that we face, knowing that it's never down to us alone to figure it out. Ultimately, the Spirit lets us love God as we're meant to and love others around us too. The fruits of the Spirit include love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Thankfully, I had that written down. I don't really know that yet. Uh, And these things are all ways of expressing love. 
But there are also ways of uh, showing their signs of our internal change, of God changing our hearts. So as I said, we're never alone to change by our own efforts. This becomes self-help or self-improvement, which ultimately doesn't give that same abundant life that we get when we deny ourselves and take up our cross. With self-help or improvement, the focus is upon you or on me, which is not the case with our faith. God knows that the happiest and the most fulfilled people are those who live for him and for others. Hence why these are the two greatest commandments, love God and love your neighbor. For this, we just need to call on Jesus to save us and to accept the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Philippians 2.13, it says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do you see what's being said there? That we're told we should continue to work our salvation. But the point is that God is working within us, that we're never doing it by ourselves. And God is there working in us to fulfill his great promise. So, final slide. So, we have this knowledge that God offers us this new self, a form of ourselves that God wants us to be, leaving behind our old self, the sin, the darkness, the things that held us back from that relationship with God. We don't need to make this change ourselves, but when it comes to it, we need to surrender to God and let him work in a way that he knows is best for us. So in terms of response, we have our prayer ministry. I think they'll be in the corner here. And they just love to pray with you about anything at all. But I'd really encourage you to go forward for prayer for um, anything affecting you, for encouragement to put on that new self that God has prepared for you, or talk about any other issues that you have. So let's close in prayer. Loving Father, we come before you with our sin, our darkness, our old selves, surrender to you. We ask that you'd provide all that we need to change to become the people you want us to be. We know that we can't do that by ourselves, and we're so thankful that you don't leave us to work towards it alone. You're here alongside us, within us, guiding us and holding us by the hand to bring us closer to you, fulfilling us completely, so we're not pulled into a futile game of whack-a-mole, chasing after the things that we believe will complete us, but will ultimately leave us wanting more. Thank you for your persistent love, your grace, and the plans that you have in store for each person here tonight. We love you, God, and we thank you for what you did for us through your son Jesus on the cross. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So I think the worship band are going to come up again, and we'll have a few more tunes just to worship together. Thank you.